Walt, um, those, where's Walt? Where'd he go? He must be outside. Anyway, Walt, the gentleman who greets most of you at the door most Sundays, uh, <clears throat> asked me, he said, so who are you going to get to preach for you next week? And uh, at thinking that I was not going to have somebody to preach for me, but yet I do. So I, I, so I told him, yeah, I have somebody coming all the way from North Carolina. And so, uh, so they were, I've known uh, Dr. Randy Allen and his wife, Karen, uh, for, shoot, how many years now? I don't know, long time. 11, 12 years? No, that's true. You knew Jennifer. All right, so at least 15, 16 years. A long time. Uh, and so, a uh, long, long time. Man, it's been a long, long time. At any rate, so uh, he was one of my professors at uh, Mount Olive University when we attended in, uh, in Eastern North Carolina. My wife and I both attended separate times and uh, got to know him really well, so well that I said, I would love to be a part of, of your church. And so we, uh, we joined his church in Kinston, North Carolina for seven years. And uh, yeah, I know, right? And um, I tried that with my kids. I'm trying to think how, how old my kids were. And so we, we knew them for a long time. He has been an awesome mentor, uh, a great teacher, uh, a great friend. And I'm so honored to have him um, sat under him again for seven years. It was such a blessing in our lives and my family's life to, to be uh, under Dr. Allen. And have him here is, is pretty cool, right? So uh, this is technically, quote unquote, our first church. I mean, mine is Lee Pastor. So to have the pastor of the pastor to come in is always pretty important and pretty cool to for me especially. But I know he's going to be a blessing to you as well. He's such a he's, he's a such a gifted teacher, and I know he's going to and get us something really good this morning. I'm super excited to hear it, and I know you'll be blessed by it. So, without much further ado, feel free to come on up here, Dr. Ranley Allen. Thank you so much. Thank you, brother. Yep. It is a real pleasure to be here. I think when Jason and Jennifer first came up here two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, time flies. We, uh, Karen and I, wanted to come up here just to check them out. And we've been trying to get up here to New England, and we finally got up this week. We flew into Boston last Tuesday and did some Boston stuff, went up to Maine and New Hampshire. We got my daughter-in-law's parents live in northern Vermont, went up there and came down here. And we're going to Rhode Island uh, tomorrow. Yeah, and then fly out again. So we've done the New England thing. Uh, thank you, Jason, for saying what a blessing I, we have been. You guys have been a blessing to us. Uh, I did uh, meet Jennifer first. Uh, she started the uh, religion program at Mount Olive. Uh, she was single, but she was dating this fella. And we heard about this Jason fella. I don't know if he even existed. And the next thing I know, she was engaged. And then she was married. And before the program was out, she was pregnant with Jaden. And we had to rush her through, make sure she got all her work done before she graduated. And then I guess two, three years later, you came on board and met the person she was talking about. And then again, as he said, uh, came to our church in Kinston, which is about a 30-minute drive uh, for seven years. Um, for seven years. So they, uh, uh, I'm going to say this, and you're going to say amen to this. They've been a blessing to you, have they not? They are uh, outstanding parents, outstanding people, outstanding ministers, and uh, you are, uh, is this theologically correct? You are fortunate to have uh, them here, and I uh, appreciate that. And it's, uh, it's good to, um, well, this, let me tell you, this is a most unusual day because I think for the first time in 25 years, 17 years, whatever it is, he called me Randy. Uh, he's always been Dr. Outland, and uh, 
and they've taught their kids. In fact, let me tell you this one story. I guess Jaden must have been four, and they've been teaching the kids respect the position, Dr. Outland, and I guess he didn't understand what Dr. Outland meant. He called me Builder Bob. Uh, that, Bob the Builder. So that was, you know, an important title he gave me at four years old. What more important is that? I mean, than, than uh, build, Bob the Builder? What is, I don't know what it is. So it, it is just a real privilege to be here. I have been a Baptist pastor for 30 years, full-time, in eastern North Carolina. We're in Kinston, which is in the middle of East North Carolina. North Carolina's in three sections, the coastal and the Piedmont and the mountains, and we're in the coastal area, right step in the middle. Uh, we've been there 18 years. Uh, our last church was where we were together, and I stepped away from the pulpit about five years ago, a little early, and um, been doing other things. In the last two years, I've been an interim pastor, a church in Goldsboro, about 30 minutes to the west of us. Uh, almost two years as they're looking for a full-time pastor, and I'm now a, a small church, about the size of this church here, maybe a little small, a little bigger than this church, uh, in Kinston, uh, Emmanuel Baptist Church, been there about three months as they're looking for a full-time pastor. So we're doing all kinds of good things and up here to visit you fine people in Vermont. Our text today you see on the screen is from Mark chapter 1, the gospel according to Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Uh, let me uh, read that. You can have the text up there. And you said this is ESV. That's what I got. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will, be, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Okay, that's good, good. Wouldn't you love to be that person you see on TV? When that TV crew comes to your door and knocks on your door and says to you, you have won $20,000 a week for the rest of your life. With that big check. You've seen that, haven't you? Would not be good news. Well, I think all of us, and you kind of hinted to that, our problems in life, wouldn't, we all need some good news right now. There's all kinds of things going on. We, we read the papers, look at the internet, and you see what's happening in Iran and all the Islamic terrorist stuff going on. We look at, the obviously, the political discourse divide in our country. I don't know what your state government's like. We've got the same problem uh, in North Carolina. Uh, obviously, you got China. China's always in the news about something. Uh, we worry about that sometimes. Uh, maybe your family situation's not doing so good, need some good news. Or maybe where you're working, where you're employed, something's not going on right there. Relationship with a boss or a coworker. Uh, we, we need some good news, I'm sure. Now, I'm sure probably during the Christmas season, you've heard the little phrase that happened that says many times, Jesus is the reason for the season. You've heard that before? Well, yeah, that's true. But Jesus is not just a reason for the season. He's a reason for everything. Thank you very much. I'd like to hear that. I think it's interesting how Mark begins his gospel. It's, it's a little, little different. He, you know, Matthew and Luke, where we get the Christmas story from, Matthew and Luke um, gives this background of Jesus, the birth stories of Jesus and the genealogy of Jesus, who, who he came from. And he kind of lines it out for that. And then John begins his gospel from the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. So he goes all the way back to the beginning. But Mark begins with announcements. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Bam, here it is. 
Just, just a, a simple uh, announcement. Now, now, why does John, why does uh, Mark say it this way? Write it this way. Well, uh, many Bible teachers think that Mark probably wrote with the Romans in mind, and Romans were people of energy. They were people of deeds, people of of service. They they, they wanted action, not talk. And in the uh, Gospel of Mark, Jesus is presented as the servant of God. He's always serving, he's always doing. And see, to a Roman, a servant's genealogy makes no difference. I don't care where you came from. I want you to work. I want you to serve. So Mark doesn't give that. They want to see action. They want to see activity. And Mark does that in the Gospel of John about Jesus. In fact, one of Mark's favorite words in the Gospel is the word immediately. Immediately Jesus did this. Immediately he did that. I like the way King James says it, straightway. That's a word we don't use in America. He went straightway. But immediately, I think about 28 times in, in the uh, 15, 16 chapters, he used the word immediately. In fact, as you read the first couple chapters of Mark, if you read it in one sitting, it, it almost feels like he did this all in one afternoon, the way Mark writes it. He did this. Immediately he did this. Immediately he did that. Jesus is always on the move. He's always in action. Now, this announcement, this good news, this gospel is a word the Romans would know. Now, the Greek word is euangelion, which literally means good news or good tidings. And that's where we get the word gospel from. It usually meant good news about the emperor. Good news is a new emperor. Good news, the emperor has, has won a great victory. Good news, the emperor is coming back home. It usually would mean about the emperor. So, so when Mark starts the beginning of the gospel, his Roman readers already got their ears picked up. It's going to be about the emperor, isn't it? Well, no. It's the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So to Mark and to us, what does this good news mean? In our text, we have two reasons, two things it means. First of all, this is the first point, the good news means that Jesus Christ fulfills the Old Testament. Now hang with me on this for a second. Mark begins with this announcement, this good news of Jesus Christ or about Jesus Christ. And then in verses 2 and 3, we got a quote from the book of Isaiah. What's this all about? Here's the good news. Here's some Old Testament quotes, Old Testament prophecy. So we have the good news, Jesus and Old Testament prophecy. Sometimes we don't put that together. So what's going on here? What does Jesus have to do with the Old Testament? Now, the Bible, and sometimes we don't understand this, we don't, don't see it yet. The Bible is really one story. Now, it's not a narrative completely like a novel or like a historical novel. It just, you read the whole thing, you get a whole story. It's there in different kinds of, of literature. But there is a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end. That's what stories are, right? There's one narrative, one theme, one story throughout all of the 66 books of the Bible. Now, if you've been a student of the Bible for a long time, like I have and many people I know, we know all the Bible stories. My mother read my sister and I, you know, the Bible stories when we were little kids. So we know about Abraham and Adam and Eve and David and Goliath and Jesus and, you know, but we don't know where they all fit together. We know all the stories, but who came first, Jonah or Abraham? Can you tell me? You probably don't know right now. 
so we, we know all, of the, all the pieces of the Bible, maybe, but how does it all work? There, there is one story. It's not disconnected at all. Let me try to share very briefly what I call the cosmic drama, that the story of, of the whole Bible. Now, it's about a 15 or 20-minute presentation that I would give, and I won't give that here. I'll give a very abbreviated version of this. But uh, if you're taking notes, because it's not on the screen, unfortunately, that's my fault. But uh, if you're taking notes, it would be very easy. But I think you maybe can remember it as I say it. If you have a drama, you have acts. So gonna, there's five acts in this drama. Act one is called creation. And that's Genesis 1 and 2. You know the story of creation. The beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything that's there. And at the end of, well, really the beginning of chapter 2, God said, this is very good. This is great, what I've done. And in chapter 2, he talks about specifically about uh, Adam and Eve and, and in the garden. And things are just great. Uh, and then the act 2 is I call the fall, which is Genesis 3 through 11. In Genesis 3, you know the story of Adam and Eve and how they disobeyed God and ate of the fruit. It was not an apple. It was a fruit, by the way. But they ate of the fruit, and they disobeyed God, and they got kicked out of the garden, and things are going downhill fast. You turn the page to the chapter 4 of Genesis, and you got a brother killing a brother. Murder in the fourth chapter of the Bible. we got murder. And then things progress in, in the Bible there, and uh, the people multiply, and there's lots and lots of people. And time we get to Noah, uh, God says the world is extremely wicked, except Noah and his three sons and their four wives. And that's it. I had one Bible teacher teach me or taught me or said to me, the number one cause of death during Noah's time was murder. Wow. People lived a long time, but those that died usually died because of murder, because things are extremely wicked. So we have the flood comes as, as punishment, and God kind of starts over with Noah and his family, and then we go to chapter 11 of Genesis, and we have the Tower of Babel. Mankind is getting proud. Let's build this, this, this temple. Let's build this building to heaven, and they'll be, have a, uh, be famous. Our names will be renowned, and God came down and brought judgment through the, the different languages and scattered them. So from Genesis 3 through 11, I call the fall. Things are getting messed up. Things are getting worse and worse and worse. Act 3, I call Israel. And this is Genesis 12 through the book of Malachi. This is the rest of the Old Testament. That's a lot. Now, this begins with Abraham and goes all the way to Malachi, the last prophet. So usually there, I have five uh, scenes in this act. I won't go into details of that right now. Maybe Jason do that later for you sometime. But I do want to kind of explain from Abraham, Genesis 12, through the rest of the Old Testament, through what's called the covenants. You've heard of covenants, have you, in the Old Testament? The first covenant really is with Abraham. Uh, God said, I'm going to bless the whole world through you and your lineage, Abraham. And Abraham believed God and his credit as righteousness to him. And he made a covenant with him. And through him, the world will be blessed. Now, as Christians on this side of, of the cross, we see the world has been blessed through his descendant, Jesus. Then later on, as, as the children, he has a son, Isaac, a son, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Uh, one is sold into slavery. Joseph goes to Egypt. He becomes a prime minister. I'm going through a lot of stuff really fast here. 
uh, and, and he saves his family through the famine. And the, ch- the children of Israel, of Jacob, who became Israel, come down to Egypt. And they come down about 70 people. They leave in 400 years. Maybe it's perhaps 2 million people. We're not really sure. They, come, they go down as a family. They come out as a nation. Moses leads them to the well, to Mount Sinai, to the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. And God basically says that this covenant, he says, if you'll be my people, I'll be your God. And they said yes, and he said yes. That's when the Jews supposedly became God's chosen people because they made a covenant together. I'll be your God, and you obey me, but I'll be your God, you'll be my people. All right, because you're my people, here are ten commandments you're to keep to show you my people. They didn't do the Ten Commandments, become God's people. That's an important point here. Because they're God's people, now do it this way, different from everybody else. Time goes on, and we come to a place where they get a king, Saul and David and Solomon. And and David is a a great king, and and David wants to build a a permanent uh, building, a temple for God, instead of having the tabernacle, the tent. And he said, God, I want to build you a, a Beautiful building. And God said, appreciate it very much, David, but no, you're a man of war. Uh, I don't want you building a temple, but your son will. But I tell you what, David, instead of you building me a house, I'm going to build you a house, a lineage. And there will be a son of yours on the throne of Israel forever. That's important. That's a covenant God made with David. Now, again, looking back, we see that's Jesus, who is the son of David, who will be the king forever. And then we get to the prophets after they go into um, captivity by the Babylonians. Jeremiah is one of the prophets, and, and Jeremiah talks about a new covenant that's coming. Not words on stone, but words upon the heart, looking to the new. And Jesus talked about the new covenant at the Last Supper with his disciples. It's the new covenant. So this covenant with Abraham, covenant with Moses and the children of Israel, covenant uh, with David, and a covenant, new covenant. That's one way of looking at the Old Testament story in five minutes instead of 30 minutes. So we have a man, Abraham, who becomes a family, the children of Israel, becomes a nation, the nation of Israel, and this nation produces a deliverer. We sang about that. A deliverer, a Messiah, a redeemer, not just of Israel, but a redeemer for the whole world. That's the Old Testament. That's Act 3. Act 4 are called the Messiah. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are stories about Jesus. And they're saying Jesus is the Messiah. Everything in the Old Testament talked about the Messiah, Jesus fulfills that. That's what these four Gospels talk about. Then Act 5 is the church. That's you and me. That's from the book of Acts through Revelation chapter 20. We're in that age, that church age, you might say. Since then, that time, we're <laughs> one of the things I teach about all this church history, and, and that's not just old stuff. We're in church history right now. <laughs> Meeting a day, we're making history in the church. So that river continues to flow. So we're in Act 5 now of this cosmic drama. One of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis. And he says in one of his books that when the author of the play comes on to the stage, you know the play is over. So in Revelation chapter 20, the author of life 
comes on the stage of history, on the white horse, and history is no more. It's over. Act 5 is over. But we still got Revelation 21 and 22 to deal with in the Bible. What's going on there? So for years, as I was trying to study this and teach this, um, I said, well, is a new heavens, new earth, which is Revelation 21 and 22, is this Act 6? And I said, well, I think what's happened, indeed, the curtain has come down when Jesus comes back. And a new drama begins in Revelation 21 and 22. The new heavens, new earth. Uh, we can't imagine what it's going to be like. We got a little taste of it in Scripture. We can't imagine. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament and the New Testament, of course. He is the center of the biblical story. He's the center of the cosmic drama. And all five of these acts and then the new drama coming up centers on Jesus. Now, if you had never picked up the Bible before and you're reading it for the first time and all you had was the Old Testament and you read through the Old Testament, got to the end of Malachi, and you'd say, where's the end of the story? It leaves you hanging. Who is this Messiah? What is he going to do? When does he come? And it just kind of leaves you hanging. But on the other hand, if you just had the New Testament and never read the Bible before and you started reading in Matthew and go through the gospel and say, what's the backstory? Who are these Pharisees? Who, what's all this prophecy? You, you, know, you need both parts. You need the Old Testament and New Testament. And I guess my point, main point here at this point is the importance of the Old Testament in our Bible. We need both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I think so many churches, at least down south, maybe up here too, so many churches and preachers and teachers seem to ignore the Old Testament. That's old stuff. Forget that. We got a new covenant. We got Jesus. We don't need the Old Testament anymore. I think, I think that's mistaken. See, Jesus is the center of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. See, in the Old Testament, points forward to Jesus through the priests and through the sacrifices and through the, uh, the tabernacle and the, and the uh, temple and through the kings and the prophets. All these are shadows and really are pointing toward Jesus. The Gospels look back to Jesus. His life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his appearances, his ascension. The epistles point forward in Christian living. How do we live as a Christian between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus? And also gives us some hints about the new heavens and new earth. So I guess my point here is don't ignore the Old Testament. Don't be afraid of it. Don't ignore it. In fact, we need it. The good news of Jesus Christ that he fulfills the Old Testament prophecy. And I must admit right now, friends, I, I'm frustrated because I want to say a lot more about this. I don't have three or four hours uh, about Jesus and the Old Testament. But he is a center of the Old Testament. So what does the good news of Jesus Christ mean? It means, first of all, that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament scriptures. That's what verses 2 and 3 is about. Second, the good news means that Jesus is king. Now, we haven't had a king around here in a long time. And we Americans don't understand kings very well. Now, Brits do obviously more, but kings even today in, in Europe aren't the same as they were three, four, or 500 years ago. So Jesus' king doesn't, doesn't really ring a bell. So here in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, contrary to popular belief, Christ is not Jesus' last name. He is not the son of Joseph and Mary Christ of Bethlehem. 
No, Christ is a title. It is the Greek translation, Christ, of the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah is Hebrew, Christ is Greek. They mean the same thing. They're completely identical. Christ, Messiah is identical, which really literally means the anointed one or, or an anointed one. An anointed one was so anointed by God. There could be prophets. It could be kings were called anointed ones, messiahs. But the Old Testament talks about the messiah, the anointed one that's to come. Of course, talking about Jesus. But these, these messiahs, these anointed ones in the Old Testament were usually given a spiritual task like kings or prophets. And you could translate that word or interpret the word to mean king. So instead of uh, Jesus Christ, call him King Jesus. That's, that's legitimate. That's what it really means. Now, during the first century, the time of Jesus, that, that, first, that first century, they, the Jews are looking for a Messiah. They're looking for what was said in the Old Testament. They're looking for to set up David's kingdom again, this Messianic age, the, uh, the, the son of David coming on a white horse and defeating the Romans in particular to put us back to be first place again. Defeat the Romans. And Jesus says in many places, yes, you're right, but I'm not the kind of Messiah you think I'm going to be. Now, if you remember in John chapter 6, Jesus had just finished feeding the 5,000. And that text is 5,000 men. There are other women and children there. It might have been 20,000 he fed. I don't know. But the text says 5,000 males were there. And after it was all through, the crowd understood. If you read in chapter 6 of John, the crowd understood a miracle had taken place. Not unlike Moses, God, through Moses, bringing manna down in the wilderness. Very, very similar. And they were about ready to force Jesus to become king. If you'll feed us this way, you be our king. What did Jesus do? You remember what Jesus did? He took off. He said, no. I, basically, I'm reading into it. He's saying, I am the Messiah, but not like you think. I'm not I'm a, a man of Messiah. I'm not here just to feed you. Again, this good news I mentioned earlier is an announcement usually about the emperor. So when we say Jesus is Lord or Jesus is King, um, I, I think we don't do it flippantly, but I think we don't fully understand what we're saying. We say Jesus Lord. In, in the congregations I've led, I usually start the worship service by saying good morning, good morning, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord indeed. It's a good affirmation, good way to, to start the worship service. But I don't think we really have the full impact of what Jesus is Lord means. Now what if I said Jesus is governor? What does that mean? Or Jesus is president? That's a little different feel, isn't it? Or Jesus is the commander-in-chief of the universe. That's what we mean. Again, king doesn't communicate very well to, to us Americans, but, but I... So when, when the first early church started saying Jesus is king, they were saying the emperor's not. The emperor's really a parody of the real king, of the real emperor. That's, it, was, it was kind of kind of cultural. That's chewing that for a while. As our king, Jesus wants from us individually and as a church, obedience and service and loyalty and, and, and love. 
But he's not an impersonal king. He's not a king who's, who's way far away, a king we can't approach, but he's a personal king. You see, in verses 2 and 3 of, of our text today, as from Isaiah, uh, it's preparing the way for his coming. Prepare the way. It's, it's a personal king. Many years ago, the Prince of Wales visited India, and there was this formidable barrier that was put up uh, between him and, and the common masses of people, those who came wanting to get a, a glimpse of, of royalty. And, and when the prince arrived, he shook hands some of the dignitaries who were presented to him there on the stage, and, and looking over their heads into the crowds, he says, take down those barriers. And they were quickly removed, and all the people, regardless of their social rank, had free access to the heir to the British throne. Sometime later, the prince came to that district again, and thousands of outcasts walked under the banner and scribed the words, the prince of the outcast. What the prince of Wales did in that moment sounds very much like what Jesus would have done in the same situation. He was a king, to be sure, but a king who demonstrated his power through service to his people. So how do we prepare for his coming? Well, the first word is a word we don't like to say too much. is the word repent, to change our mind, to change our ways. We need to trust him. We need to obey him, come to him fully, to surrender. That's a word we don't hear much either. Again, C.S. Lewis says, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He's a rebel who must lay down his arms. Amen, Brother Lewis. We need to surrender. Now, and the Apostle Paul, read his letters, and he, he kind of comes across this way, how you can be adopted into his family. John says you must be born again. These all mean the same thing from, from little different angles. Jesus came as God's king to die for our sins. We might be forgiven and be right with God and to be accepted into his family. I think it's amazing Jesus died for our sins, that we can come to him through repentance, have our sins forgiven, have everything wiped out. That's great. And if he had just done that, I'd have been great. But also, through that, he accepts us into his family. Wow. It's one thing for a judge to, to say, you're forgiven of your crimes, and then, hey, come live with me. Wow. Wow. That's what Jesus has done for us. You see, he wants that personal relationship. He's not a master, as we see in Islam, Allah and Islam. He's not a master, but a servant, really. He is a father to a son or daughter. Jesus is God's king, but we can have a personal relationship with that king. The good news, the, the gospel, is not a discussion it's not a debate, but an announcement. Do you remember the Christmas story when the angels came to shepherds? It was an announcement to them that the Messiah had been born. That's what the gospel is. It's an announcement. It's not about an emperor. It, this announcement says the Old Testament is fulfilled. This announcement says that God's king, God's anointed one, has arrived, and you can have a personal relationship with God's king who rules the universe. As Isaiah would say, prepare the way of the Lord in your life. 
So the good news is God's plan is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is Lord of the universe, of this church, and of your life. Let's pray together.